0: Oh God, our church, ultimately we want to place in your hands. Uh, You are the one who makes uh, the body up together. You are the one who has called us to be uh, your bride. You are the one in charge of this ship. And so we give you our fall. We ask for your special blessing upon us as we seek to please you in all we say and all we do. And as we wrap up this series this summer, as we finish up the book of Daniel, which has been uh, so enlightening and inspiring to us, would you once again open up our eyes so that we might understand this one final vision. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. You know, if you've ever been to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, you will know that there are no instruments there. Uh, No organ, no cymbals, uh, no drums, no guitar. In fact, the only instrument they would ever play in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue would be a shofar. Uh, If you ask an Orthodox rabbi why that is the case, why is there no instruments, they, they say, well and this is not true of Reformed Jewish synagogues or conservative synagogues, but in the Orthodox synagogues, they will say the reason why we don't use any musical instruments is because our fathers said in Psalm 137 long ago, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, the trees, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But we said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I think a lot of us struggle with that same question. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in this foreign land? We live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by constant reminders that this world is not our home. That's why we call this series When Babylon is Home, because the term Babylon in the Bible takes on a larger-than-life significance. It's not just a geographical location, although it is. It becomes a symbol of evil, a symbol of this world power, a symbol of exile. And it's a reminder that we are aliens and strangers here, and that things are not the way it's supposed to be when Babylon is home. Uh, We're surrounded by sin and selfishness and idolatry and paganism and injustice. And that's just on social media. Uh, We're regularly reminded of the presence of sin and pain and suffering and sorrow every single day. And as such, we find it very difficult to sing the songs of the Lord while in this foreign land. I wonder if you're here today and that's kind of where you are. Uh, Don't get me wrong. Uh, Maybe you have a strong faith in God, you are firm in your beliefs, and you know one day it will all work out, but you're not there right now. Right now you're here, and you're struggling to sing the songs of the Lord in this foreign land. That's a really good question. How do we sing the songs of the Lord in this foreign land? I believe that's actually what the book of Daniel is all about. Uh, Daniel is someone who has learned, so to speak, to sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land, because Daniel is not just a prophet, although he is. uh, He is, by, by the Hebrews, actually placed not in the prophetic books, but in the wisdom section of the scriptures, because we, as his readers, are meant to learn from him how to sing, so to speak. And so today we reach the final message in our series, the final vision in the book of Daniel. It's chapters 10 through 12. Uh, Now let me say quite honestly, this is, in my opinion, the most difficult passage in the whole Bible uh, and the most complex. And so uh, it's pretty difficult to get through this, but it is also very magnificent. And what we're going to see here are three movements in our text today. Uh, We're going to see three things. We're going to see a heavenly war, a succession of enemies, and a final victory. heavenly war, a succession of enemies, and a final victory. If you don't like those three points, you can come up with your own. Okay, so those are mine. Here we go. Daniel chapter 10. uh, The people of God uh, are going to end up on the winning side of victory. And here we begin as uh, we start this wild ride in chapter 10, verse 1. Ready? In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Everybody say three weeks. Three weeks I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now notice this vision comes during this time of mourning and this time of prayer and this time of fasting for Daniel. But after three weeks, something breaks in the spiritual realm. And Daniel sees something that absolutely takes his breath away. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. Friends, here at the beginning of chapter 10, we are leaving the physical realm we are being transcended into another dimension. And here we're going to meet a few heavenly characters up there that we need to keep straight. And the first one who is particularly awesome is the man in linen. He's the one in these three chapters who's going to give this vision. And I want you to notice his description really carefully because it is quite magnificent in verse 6. His body was like barrel. His face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Whoa. It's actually a little scary, isn't it? I mean, this is not the kind of guy I want to run into in the bad part of town in the middle of the night, right? This is a warrior, a heavenly warrior. I want you to remember his description, because I'm going to come back to this later, But it tells us that Daniel gets a glimpse of him. And then just to summarize, he falls on his face, loses all of his strength, and cannot move because of the man in white linen. Uh, Then dropping down to verse 10, we're told another supernatural being, I think another angel enters the scene. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved Stand upright, for now I have been sent to you, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, that was three weeks ago, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now just side point. Notice how personal this is. He comes for Daniel because Daniel fasted and prayed. And sometimes we wonder if God is working, because although we know he interacts in a general way in this world and in creation, we wonder, does he really know me? Like, individually, does he really hear my prayers and know my concerns individually? And the answer, according to Daniel chapter 10, is a resounding yes. Friends, That means God hears you and knows you and knows what you are going through right now. And he wants to answer your prayers, too, because like Daniel, God wants to tell you, fear not, you too are greatly loved by God. Amazing. But he says in verse 13... The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This is a fascinating glimpse into the spiritual realm. First of all, did you notice what just happened in our text? Uh, The angel says, I would have been here 21 days ago, but I got kind of held up. Held up like traffic, like construction. No, 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 this is not me and you sitting uh, at the Somerville Circle during rush hour. There's a war going on. He's involved in a war. There is a spiritual war. I want to say more about that, but just give me a moment. Here we have two more characters introduced. First, there's Michael, the chief of princes. Who is that? He's the very top of the hierarchy of angels, and he stands guard over the nation of Israel. And he's the most powerful of all the heavenly creatures. Creatures, But his name actually means, who is like God? So although he is majestic, and although he's powerful, and although he's mighty, still every time you hear his name, you are reminded, still no one can compare to God. And secondly, there's this prince of the kingdom of Persia who's fighting against him. There's another angel, but it's a fallen angel, a demon, part of the kingdom of darkness. And then there's this conflict between the two of them. This text is incredible. What we learn here in this brief little paragraph is that there are errands run by angels on behalf of God's people doing battle for us. And we are involved in this fight through prayer and fasting. See, the scriptures teach us this, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities in the heavenly places. What we see here in the physical realm is only a shadow of the truth, but there is more than meets the eye. Yes, it's invisible, but it is true. It's not that it's false. It's real. It's not fiction. It's fact. And the point of Daniel chapter 12 is simply just to remind us or to teach us maybe for the first time that a war is waging behind human history in the spiritual realm. A war is raging out there. And the reason this is so important is because what you believe about that influences the way you live right now today, does it not? So here's the application. God says, you and I need to be in this fight. The spiritual battle is something God calls us, like Daniel, to be engaged in, and our weapons are not carnal, but they are mighty as to the pulling down of strongholds because there is an ongoing war. In the words of Chuck Swindoll, he says this These verses, let's go to the next slide, these verses flash a sober warning. Overcoming demonic forces is not a once for all matter. See, that's why Paul tells the church in Ephesus as they encountered their own invisible war, quote, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. In our context at Millington, there's a small group of men who get together every Wednesday morning. They call it prayer with Joe. When I first started here, I thought, who's Joe? Joe. Uh, Joe is coffee. They get together at 6.15 in the morning every Wednesday and pray for this church, what's going on that week at this church, and a certain leader of the church every single Wednesday. Any man is welcome to join us at 6.15 every Wednesday morning. But this application is not just for the men. It's for the women, adult ed classes, small groups, elders. Let's make sure we as a church are spending time in prayer. We must not forget this is a war. And so the purpose of Daniel 10 is at least twofold. First, to unveil the reality of a supernatural world at work behind the scenes. And secondly, as I move on, it's also to underline the supernatural authority of this final vision Daniel is about to receive. And we see that vision beginning in chapter 11. So let's just kind of drop down there, summarizing to movement two in our vision, the succession of enemies. Chapter 11, verse one. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. And chapter 11 begins with the man in white linen speaking. And it's, it's almost like these three chapters are one grand movie. And, and chapter 11 is movement two, talking about the enemies of God's people, especially during the intertestamental time period, but also in a time yet to come. And there are a few key players that we meet. The first one is Darius. Remember Darius is part of the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember in Daniel, there's four main kingdoms at play. There's Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Remember that? Say amen if you're with me. Okay. I know it's been a while since then. But Darius was part of that second empire. And here the man in white linen says in his first year... He had to take a military stand on behalf of Darius. And what's in view here is that efforts were made in the first year of King Darius to make him hostile towards the people of God. Do you remember back in chapter 6, as soon as Darius takes power, there's a few top-level administrators in his government trying to plot to kill Daniel? Remember Daniel praying then three times a day, doing spiritual battle? Here we learn what was happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. There was a stand in heaven to make sure his policies were reversed to protect the people of God. And they were. The reason is because, as we learned in Daniel 4 and 5, heaven rules. Heaven rules. Now, what's next in Daniel 11 is a vision predicting more of the future about what's going to happen in the next couple hundred years after Darius, and after Daniel, for that matter. Take a look at verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now, here's the prediction, and you don't really need to know about the first three kings there, but the fourth king in mind is Xerxes I. Some of you may remember that that was the Persian king on the throne during the book of Esther. Remember that guy, the wealthy king? He throws this drunken party for six months, and he asks his wife, Queen Vashti, to dance for him and the other partygoers, and she wouldn't. Remember that? Well, you might also remember in that book, one of his officials named Haman comes up with an evil plot to annihilate the Jewish people and he tries to get King Xerxes to exterminate them. But what happens? God, the unseen sovereign, arranges for Esther, a Jewish woman, to become queen for such a time as this. The whole plan is thwarted and once again God's people are miraculously protected. And then Xerxes turns his attention towards Greece which did happen, and he was defeated. That's when Greece begins to rise in power, culminating with what we read here in verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. You may remember from the sermon on Daniel chapter 8 that this is Alexander the Great, the goat. Remember him? He was and is the most famous of all the Greek kings. He conquered the known world from Turkey to India, the largest empire the world had yet known. And all of this he does in less than a decade before he's aged 30, which is amazing. But God says through this vision, don't be so impressed by him. His end will come too. Then verse four, after he has arisen, His empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. This is astonishing, especially when we remember this vision was given a couple hundred years before Alexander the Great was even born. But he cannot even secure his kingdom for his own children as his sons are assassinated. And ultimately, the great Alexander is just a broken horn, according to chapter 8, verse 22. And just as was said, four of his generals take over. I'm just going to list them here on the screen. The first two are really not that important for you to know because the main focus is on these last two dynasties, the north and the south, the south having their throne in Egypt and the north had their throne in Syria. Now, why would we want to know about these last two? Well, let me ask you a question. North and south of who? Let me show you on a map. What's in between these two dynasties? Next slide. The center of the compass here is that these two nations are directly bordering and contiguous with the nation of Israel. And so the rest of chapter 11 is going to be about these two kingdoms fighting with each other, north versus south, south versus north, and sometimes fighting in Israel, sometimes fighting over Israel, and they become the enemies of God's people. Now, these prophecies about the north and the south are much more specific and much more direct than any other prophecy in the book of Daniel. In fact, they're so exact that many critics have said this must have been written after the fact, because this kind of knowledge would have been impossible. But I'd say, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. If anything is clear throughout the book of Daniel, we've seen that that message is true. Remember Nebuchadnezzar said in chapter 3, there is no God who can deliver men from a fiery furnace? But Daniel says, oh, yes, there is. Hold my coffee. (laughs) Remember in chapter 6, King Darius asked, is there a God who can deliver from the mouth of lions? And Daniel says, yes, there is. Today, when critics ask, is there a God who can actually predict the future like he does here in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel says, yes, there is. Just think about what we saw last week in the vision of the 70 weeks. Our God is omniscient. So back to chapter 11. The north and the south are at war. And what we'll see here is they go back and forth and back and forth like a seesaw again and again and again. And they have this rivalry for like a couple hundred years. It's like the Yankees versus the Red Sox. It's like the Cavs and the Warriors in the finals. Or since it's high school football season, maybe it's kind of like uh, Ridge versus Watchung Hills around here. Or for those of you over there, maybe Montclair versus Bloomfield. Amen? That's the North and the South during this time period. Now, I don't have time to go through every detail of Chapter 11, though I would encourage you to go home and read this. I have actually created a handout which explains what's going on in Chapter 11 for you. If you want one of these, you can take that on your way out today. Uh, Just a piece of advice, I would encourage you to have a strong cup of coffee in your hand when you sit down with that handout. It is pretty complicated. But this morning, I just want to point out two or three highlights from this war. So let's get ready to rumble. Verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they won't become allies. The daughter of the king of the south, that's Berenice, will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort here. And so what's happening is the king of the south sends Berenice to make an alliance with the king of the north. She marries the northern king, but it doesn't work out so well. Because this becomes like the most dysfunctional family that you've ever seen in your whole life. Some of you today, if you have a dysfunctional family, these guys will make you feel better about yourself, okay? The reason is because the guy in the north already had a wife, Laodice. They already had two sons together. They were the heirs to the throne. Despite all that, the king of the north decides to divorce that first wife, to marry this new woman, make this alliance, and then they have another son together. Well, as you might guess, his first wife, Laodice, does not really like this plan very much. As not only did he leave her, and now her own children are no longer heirs to the throne. And so what does she do? Well, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn, right? The first woman has the second wife poisoned and killed. And on top of that, uh, she has her ex-husband poisoned and killed too. Then she slaughters the child that they had together. And just to top it all off, a bunch of other Egyptian servants that were living with them, she knocks all them off as well. So I guess you could say she drains the swamp. (laughs) This would make a really good TV reality series, right? I mean, this is more drama than the Kardashians, I think. Long story short, her original son takes over again in the north, it's back in the family line, line again, but as you might guess, meanwhile, back in the south, they don't really like this very much, and one of Berenice's brothers, Ptolemy III, goes to war over all of this. Verse 7 One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Remember, we learned in chapter 5 that taking another nation's god is a sign of subjugation. That's what he does. And then it says things kind of cool off for a while. There's like two years of peace. So we have to wait two years to find out what happens next on this Netflix original series. Okay, so I realize this, there's a lot here, but bear with me as I kind of just summarize uh, the next section together. Basically, the North and South go to war with each other again and again and again. And eventually, a man named Antiochus Third or Antiochus the Great, takes over in the North for about 20 years. And his main goal, his chief purpose in life, was to defeat the South once and for all. So he builds this massive military There's all these battles. Thousands of men die. He brings infantry, cavalry, even elephants, like a couple hundred elephants down there, which is kind of interesting. But none of that works to defeat the South. In the end, Antiochus the Great from the North is defeated once and for all. And the reason, we're told, is found in verse 17, where it says he tries to make peace again through another arranged marriage. And he thought this would allow him to finally get control for the North. Good plan. Uh, You would have thought that they would have learned this kind of thing doesn't work by now, but hey, this is real dating, love, and relationships in the ancient world, I guess. Verse 17. uh, He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. There's only one problem. The northern daughter... Uh, was named Cleopatra, not the one that you're actually thinking about. A different Cleopatra, uh, Egypt's first Cleopatra. Uh, The only problem is she falls in love with the Egyptian prince. And she serves Egypt rather than her father. The plan fails. She gets her husband in Egypt to actually make an alliance with a new rising power named Rome. Rome. This spells the end of Antiochus the Great. He is eventually defeated by the Romans and assassinated in 191 B.C. Here's the big idea. I realize this is a lot, but Daniel chapter 11 is about the rise and the fall of all of these kings and all of their warmongering who who, who all seem to have the capacity to achieve much at first, but they eventually fail or fall. And why is that? commentator john golden gay says chapter 11 is the story of the exercise of power but the exercise of power leads only to external conflict internal dissolution or eclipse by a more powerful entity and then he says this telling statement it is the nature of kings not to recognize this they always aspire to that elusive final victory See, all these nations and kings rise up and grow strong, but then they're all broken down and torn down again and again and again until at the end comes one kingdom which rises and endures forever. As the old song says, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. See, the reason they're unstable, oh, let me just put this point on the screen. Here's the point of chapter 11 The kingdoms of this world are perennially unstable. But peace comes when we know that God knows. We must learn this lesson, too. If we're going to make it through this war that we're in, just as the Jews were watching all of this come to pass around them, even as we today watch the news and approach the midterm elections, we need this heaven-given, long-term perspective on our politics, and we must remember that all the kingdoms of this world are unstable. The reason is because they are ultimately rooted in the will of man, not in the will of God the only source of stability is the will of God. And so though this was terrifying for Daniel's people, none of this should take the people of God by surprise because not only is God sovereign over the affairs of men, but also notice that God cares enough to warn them. So here's God saying, heads up, Daniel, this is coming. But it's all happening under my sovereign control. The reason that's so important to remember is because what you believe about this influences the way you live today, doesn't it? And so we would do well to remember this lesson that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It might not always seem so, but it is so. And this was not only meant to bring comfort to Daniel's people, but also to subsequent generations. That's important. Just as God was able to humble Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 to become like a beast of the field, and just like he was able to write on the wall for Belshazzar in chapter 5, we must always remember the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and he gives them to whoever he wishes. None of this takes God by surprise. After all, we're reading what was in Daniel's time not history, but prophecy. With that said, let's just drop down because after Antiochus the Great was defeated, he's succeeded by a total lunatic, 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. This is none other than the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the one in view in chapter 11, verse 21 through 35. He's called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God manifests, but he was called by those who lived underneath his ruthless dictatorship, Antiochus Epemones, which means Antiochus the madman. And I know you know a little bit about the terror he brings if you were here for Bob's sermon on chapter 8, but now you know a little bit about his background. And just think about this guy's life so far. His dad, Antiochus the Great, was betrayed by his own daughter in Egypt his dad was killed by the Romans. Even he was taken as a young boy, as hostage by the Romans, and somehow he gets out and returns home and seizes power. That's a heck of an upbringing to come from. He's got some issues, some anger issues. And as such, he becomes this ruthless ruler, which is not to justify his evil, but it does kind of explain some of his insecure and narcissistic psychology, doesn't it? Side note, parents, please give your children lots of love and nurture and care and affection. Uh, while at home, do not exasperate them and raise the next Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> when it comes to this man, his main goal in life was the same as his father, to defeat the South once and for all, and he's like megalomaniacal about this goal. He leads two major attacks, and the last one is described in Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was said before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Now, I realize this is heavy, this is a lot of history, but this is actually a really, really interesting story. So stay with me. The year was 168 BC. Antiochus invades the south again, but he was met there by a Roman general of the rising Roman Empire. But the Roman general stands next to Antiochus, and then he draws a line in the sand next to Antiochus and says, if you take one more step across this line into Egypt, you have a problem with Rome. But if you retreat and go back to the north where you came from, you have no problem with Rome. Antiochus, realizing there's no way he could face the rising Roman Empire, leaves, retreats, and then in embarrassment and rage, ruthlessly takes out his anger as he heads back on the people of God. That's why it says this, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. At this point, he's determined to wipe out Judaism altogether. You remember what he did in Daniel chapter 8? He takes the holy, holy Jewish temple Uh, that they spent all that time and money rebuilding, and then he dedicates it to the Greek god, Zeus. It's blasphemous. Then he forces all the Jews to eat pig meat and celebrate on these occasions which were full of sin. And if you didn't want to participate, guess what? They kill you. You remember that story Pastor Bob told about that mom who lost her seven sons that way? 80,000 people die during this time period. But then it says in verse 32, but... The people who know their God will firmly resist him. Eventually, a man named Judas Maccabeus comes, revolts. He fights back against the Greek empire. He fights bravely, and he wins. And the people of God are free again. They rededicate the temple. Everybody's happy. Antiochus, the madman, is finally gone. And then that section concludes by saying this in verse 35. Some of the wise will stumble so that they might be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase right there? On the one hand, though the enemy of God plans this for their persecution, God in his sovereignty, in control of all things, uses those same circumstances for their purification. What God, what, what the enemy means for evil, God means for good. So that's Antiochus. At this point... You can draw a line after that verse in your Bible. Because most scholars agree that the scripture here is going to jump through time. And even in verse 35, it gives us a hint that we're about to get launched into the future with that phrase, until the time of the end. And what we have seen throughout chapter 11 with the enemies of God's people form what theologians call a trajectory of Images, meaning they're all foreshadows of one powerful and evil and ultimate enemy who will come against God's people at the end of the world. And that's who the end of chapter 11 is about from 36 on. We've just seen the shadow, but now you're about to see the real thing. 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Who is this? When is this? But what we know from other parts of the Bible putting this together is that there is one coming called the Antichrist. Antichrist. Coming from two words, anti-Christ. Anti meaning against Christ or opposing Christ, which is true. But anti also means in the Bible, in place of Christ. So he's against Christ in the most diabolical way possible. He purports to be able to replace Christ. There are other names for him in the Bible. He's called in Daniel 8, the little horn. In Daniel 9, the prince that will come. In Second Thessalonians 2, it says he's the man of sin in verse 3, the son of perdition, verse 3, the man of lawlessness in verse 8, that wicked one in verse 8, and the coming one in accord with the activity of Satan in verse 9. In the book of Revelation, he's just simply called the beast. All the same person, the Antichrist, the archenemy of the people of God. He'll be arrogant, ruthless, manipulative, and war against God's people. But his reign will be one of absolute power. He is a Satan-indwelt dictator of the world who does exactly what he pleases. And what he wants most is to blaspheme God and blaspheme Christ and all those who worship him. Notice it says he'll exalt and magnify himself above every god. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. He dares to say things no one else would ever dare to say. Imagine proclaiming yourself to be God. And here at the end of Daniel 11, he's called the king of the north. And it describes what will happen to him. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. And the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great fleet, a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, which is, of course, the land of Israel. At the end, the Antichrist will set up base between the sea and the holy mountain. There's a famous valley there, the Valley of Megiddo, a great plain on which the last battle will be fought at the end of time, and this is where he will be defeated. 45, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, I know Daniel 11 was long, But now we're about to see the resolution and the final victory as Daniel's about to bring it home for us. We've seen the spiritual war that is raging. We've seen a succession of God's enemies cultivating in one arch enemy. And now we're about to see one gigantic, climactic victory as we see what God is going to do about this. And so we reach now what's like Acts 3 in an epic movie that's very exciting. Daniel chapter 12 tells us about what's going to happen. Things are about to get real. Chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Michael, the great prince, remember, the protector of God's people, he will arise at the end of time and defend them. Again, notice the exhaustive language. There's never been a time like this ever, nor will there ever be. Jesus uses the same kind of language in Matthew 24. Then it says this, but... At that time, your people, Daniel, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Exactly how this will happen and how they will be delivered, it doesn't really say here, how will the Antichrist be destroyed? We have to look at other prophetic passages to put it all together, like Revelation and 2 Thessalonians 2, which will fill in the blank. But at that time, the Antichrist will come uh, all the nations of the world will be gathered together on the plains of Neg- Megiddo at the, the Battle of Armageddon, and then the sky itself will open. Uh, Jesus Christ will descend on a white horse, according to Revelation 19, and Second Thessalonians 2 says this, and then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And ladies and gentlemen, once and for all, Our Lord Jesus will strike down the enemy of God with a supernatural force that literally consumes him on the spot. And then Revelation says he will take him then and throw him into the lake of fire. And the Lord Jesus gains victory over evil once and for all. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall become sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Then, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the clearest statement about resurrection in the entire Old Testament. It tells us there will not just be a resurrection, but a double resurrection. Both the righteous and the wicked will rise at the end. Now, the reason why that is so important for Daniel is because on the one hand, there were many wicked kings and rulers and people who seemed to have gotten away with what they did. But here we're told that's not true. They will be raised and there will be justice and there will be a place of everlasting contempt for them. That brings us great comfort as well. Many, maybe you're here today and you've experienced real injustice in your life. And you wonder, how could God let this happen? And you wonder, how could that ever be fair? Well, what we're told here is that one day God will make it all right. As someone once said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward Justice. And one day, God will bring a final and decisive victory. On the other hand, though, the righteous, he says, will be raised too. And this is great news for Daniel's people as well. This brings great hope because many of Daniel's friends and many of Daniel's people had been killed and they never realized the promises of God. But here we learn that one day they will in a new creation. And so will we. And that's our great hope. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Did you hear that? Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson of chapter 12 Judgment is certain against human evil and those who resist God and oppress his people. But God's people are promised deliverance and will experience new life. History is not cyclical, it's linear. We're going somewhere. See, as a pastor, I know most people don't like to think about the end. Most people don't like to think about death, and they kind of just put their hands in their their heads in their in the sand about it. They don't like to think about it. They, they like to sing that song, "Imagine" by John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. Now, I like the Beatles. That's false. Here's the truth. Jesus said in John 6, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's the answer. That's the hope you need to hold on to right there. This is not a joke. Daniel chapter 12 teaches us that God is a righteous judge who will not be mocked, and one day we will stand before Him and give an answer. And the only hope we have on that day is the hope that there is a Savior who's paid the penalty for our sins and for all who turn to him with saving faith, they will be saved and rise again. The reason this is so important is because what you believe about tomorrow impacts the way you live today, doesn't it? Daniel as a whole has been inviting us to live our lives in light of our convictions about the life to come. There is a heaven, there is a hell. We are to be ready because God will return. So that's Daniel 10 through 12. There's a heavenly war. There's a succession of enemies. And there is a final victory, which is really not the end, it's just the beginning. Then the book of Daniel also has a conclusion, which is important. So let's just take a brief look at that. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Now, many interpreters say these are two angels that we've met previously, and I, I agree with that. And then one of them speaks. Someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, "How long shall it be till the end of these wonders?" The river here, I think, is significant. I think it's symbolic. This is this is the river of time the river of history that flows from beginning to end, and all of us find ourselves somewhere in this river. But this verse says that there is someone who stands above the river, above time, one who can look through time. I'll never forget one time Ed Williams gave this illustration. He said, take your eyes and just focus it on the left side of the stage somewhere on some point, and then take your eyes and then move them from the left side of the stage All the way over here to the right side of the stage and move them across the room. Just like you just look through space, there's someone here who can look through time and see the beginning and the end. Who is that? Who is this man in white linen? We've had this guy for several chapters explaining this vision. Who is he? What we know is that linen was the garb of a priest, Ezekiel 9. And what we know is that this man is described in more dazzling and more, more awesome terms than any other angel in the Bible. Terms used of God alone in Ezekiel 1. Look again at his description in chapter 10, verse 6, and it's quite a sight. And I want you to take notice as I put that description side by side with a description found in Revelation chapter 1. His face like lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. The sound of his words like a multitude. Striking similarity there, isn't it? Friends, I think it's obvious. The man in white linen is Jesus Christ. The alpha and the omega, the one above the river of time who sees the beginning and the end. We've seen him throughout the book of Daniel, hasn't haven't we? In chapter, 10, he, chapter 2, he's the stone that's not cut by human hands. In chapter 3, he's the Son of God with us through our fiery furnace. In chapter 6, he's the one that actually was thrown into the real lion's den on our behalf. In chapter 7, he's the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. In chapter 9, he is Messiah the Prince who will come in the fullness of time and be cut off from his people, but not for his sake, for our sake. And here he is at the end of Daniel, standing in linen, standing above time as our great high priest and giving reassurance to his people that one day he will come and make things right again. As the song says, one day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing, my Savior Jesus is mine. You see, the only reason I'm going to heaven, the only reason you're going to heaven is because the man in linen said you were greatly loved. And he said I could come. And he's our high priest who has made for us a way. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. How can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? And remember the question he was asked How long? When will this end? And then the man in linen responds. Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Notice he lifts both hands. When you swear in the court of law, how many hands do you lift up? One. One. But here the man in white linen lifts 2 a gesture of absolute certainty. I want you to understand something about God. Everything God has promised will certainly come to pass. Take it to the bank. God says, I'm going to raise two hands over you and swear by my own great name. Because Hebrew says there is no one greater that he is to swear by. So God swears by himself. And so here's the big picture. This man who stands above the river of time has a plan. It's the lesson we've learned throughout the book of Daniel. God saying, I have a plan. I am in control of history. I am working things out exactly as I promised. I am turning this world toward myself. I will provide the ultimate victory one day. I predict the future. I know the end of all things. I provide eternal life for those who will trust in me. And then he turns to you and he turns to me and he says, now will you live for me Now? And yes, it's hard. Yes, there's difficulties. Yes, there'll be many trials and toils and snares, but God is always on his throne, and it ain't over till Michael the archangel arises. It's real. It's coming. It's sealed, so mark it down. But until then, he says, go your way. Last verse in the book. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. I love that phrase, go your way. The phrase your way means the specific journey God is calling you to take for him. This is the unique calling God has given you. It's not a blueprint or a copy of anybody else. It's your way. This is a calling for you to live for God when Babylon is home, not to blend in but to stand firm for your God and to stand firm for your convictions and live the life that God has called you to live right here in Babylon. And as the summer ends and the school year begins, let me encourage you to go your way as Babylon is home. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, let me close the same way I began. If you go into that Orthodox Jewish synagogue and there's no instruments there, they They'll explain to you that they, they can't play them right now. But they will also say, but. 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 They say, when Messiah comes, though, on that day we will take down every instrument known to man and we will play. We'll play like we never played. And we will sing and we'll sing like we've never sang. Oh, well, friends, you and I know Messiah has come. And he's coming again, and today he instructs us to sing, to sing his song, even when we're in a foreign land. Amen?